Shalom Aleichem, welcome to the Schmooze, the Yiddish Book Center's podcast. I'm Lisa Newman, and today I'm visiting with Ken Krimstein, the author of When I Grow Up, The Lost Autobiographies of Six Yiddish Teenagers. Ken has published cartoons in The New Yorker, Punch, The Wall Street Journal, and more. He's also the author of The Three Escapes of Hannah Arendt, which won the Bernard J. Brummel Award for Biography and Memoir, and was a finalist for the Jewish Book Award and the Chautauqua Prize and Kvetch as Kvetch Ken. He lives and writes and draws in Evanston, Illinois. Welcome. Hi. Good afternoon. Thank you so much for joining me. I think you're on a um, sort of a wild and crazy uh, tour with the book coming out. Yes. Yes. It, yes, indeed. A tour, uh, a lot of Zoom touring, but actually some physical touring too. So yeah, it's happening. Great. Um, so tell me how you found your way to this project. Yeah, it's um, there are a few Bashertz uh, along the way. Um, I mean, it's kind of interesting. It was a crummy uh, Sunday, February in Chicago area. And, and anyone who's been here knows what uh, that's like. And I was feeling I was jonesing for a bagel. Uh, and we used to live in New York City. So there's a place uh, on Dempster called New York Bagel and Bialy. And I was like, I got to go get a New York bagel in Bialy. And they had a free uh, newspaper. I pick up, I'm a cartoonist, so I pick up every free newspaper. And there was a little thing and it said, talk this afternoon, uh, hidden library found free coffee. Uh, so I went and uh, somebody was speaking from uh, Yivo and it was crowded and it was, it felt very different. And they started doing this slideshow and there were these teenagers and the stories of how these things were found. And I was like, wow. I mean, I was just, I was, I was looking for something to follow up the Hannah Arendt book. And I just, this, you know, I was trying other more traditional biographies and I went right up afterward uh, to the speaker, Jonathan Brent. And I said, is anybody doing anything with these, these stories? And he said, what do you mean doing anything with them? And I was like, well, I'm a graphic novelist and before I knew it, I was in Vilnius, Lithuania, working on the book. Yeah. It's got an amazing backstory. Um, so maybe talk a little bit, if you don't mind, about, about that um, and sort of how these came about, because it is yeah. an incredible story. It, it is an incredible story. And, you know, I come to this like I do with most of my projects. I mean, I barely knew Yevo from TiVo when I started this, but um, <laughs> uh, so in Interwar, before World War II, um, this Yiddish Scientific Institute had been established in uh, Vilnius, and they had a Vilna called in Yiddish Vilnius now, and um, there were, it was an incredible group of scholars, and they wanted to do a study, an ethnographic study, privileging teenagers, or they didn't even call them teenagers in those days, youth, the youth, to look forward into the future. And in order to get these kids, they offered a small prize uh, of 150 Zlatis, which I've, I don't really know how much it translates. I think you could get, you could share a crummy apartment in Warsaw for a year on that, which is not insignificant, uh, best I could figure. But they wanted them to be anonymous so that the kids would tell the truth, but they had an arcane way of making sure that you know, they could find out who wrote it so you could get sent the Zlatis if you want. And hundreds and hundreds came in in three waves over the 1930s, hundreds. And they were written in little student notebooks in Yiddish. 
And um, I looked at some, I had seen some, and then the Nazis invaded actually September 1st, 1939, the very day that the contest big prize was to be awarded. So this was another extreme irony. And of course they never awarded the prize and they vanished. And one of the first thing, well, the Nazis, one of the first things they did when they got into Vilna was they went to uh, YIVO and they wanted to get all the materials and the paper brigade, which um, David Fishman has written about, they tried to save a lot of them. Well, anyway, to cut way, way ahead, some, was some were found in Frankfurt by the monument men, but many were law never found in a few years ago. That's why this uh, luncheon thing was being held. They were cleaning out uh, a church, uh, an old decommissioned church in Vilnius, and they found these 150,000, 160,000 pages of Yiddish documents, among them many of these, these diaries, these autobiographies, and uh, very poignant because they were written before the war. They were written before. They were it was like I was in New York uh, on 9 10 2001, and it was a beautiful sunny day, you know? No, you couldn't, you didn't. And not that this was a beautiful sunny day, so clouds were gathering, but it was a window into this world. And uh, so they were lost, and then they, they, were, they were rediscovered. And uh, I heard that uh, they were being kept in, in the National Library in Vilnius. And I luckily met the librarian there, Lara Lempert, and um, she was working on cataloging them and they were going to be there. So I had to go there and uh, I had never been that far east uh, before. And I handled these things. I held them and uh, it was amazing. It was just incredible. So I thought this could make an incredible story. And I had to select, I had to figure out how to organize it. So I, I found people to help translate them for me because I, my Yiddish is, is not extremely good. My Hebrew is not very good. And these were written by kids in script in the 1930s. Some were very beautiful handwriting and some were in fragments. But uh, yeah, they were found. And uh, I thought I wanted to show them. I wanted to show them. It's such a window, um, as you say, into these individual teens, etc. I wanted to... Um, read a little bit of, about the rules of this mm. contest, um, which are, I quote, do not think that only an individual with extraordinary experiences can enter. Do not think that little things are unimportant. And above all, do not make your autobiographies, quote, more interesting, quote, by inventing incidents or using flowery language. So it. you mentioned that all these entries were done anonymously and they you know, I've, I've read a bunch of this text as well. Um, and they're very personal and they're really interesting. And I wonder what it was like for you to select the ones that you included. I can imagine that was a hard experience. Oh, it was very hard, but I knew, um, so I've did, I did the Hannah Arendt book and I've been a cartoonist and I, I wanted it to be, um, I knew it, I didn't want it to be one story. I wanted it to be a range. And um, I wanted it to show some of the diversity of that world, um, which I, I kind of made up the phrase yiddish because, you know, my people, you know, go back to that part of the world. And one was from Berdichev and one was from Vilna and one is from Minsk and one is from, you know, Kurland. And, but they all spoke Yiddish. 
and some went to New York, some came to Chicago. And I wanted to show some of the diversity of that community because they got over 700 of these in over the period. And they came, some even came from, um, I think, Argentina, which I would say was an honorary part of Yiddish Uania, or not even honorary. But in any case, I wanted to show the range as so I was starting to look at them. So there was, there was urban, rural, rich, poor, boy, girl, observant, secular, and they were all there. And, you know, that thing you mentioned about don't use flowery language and all this stuff. I mean, uh, Ellen Cassidy uh, translated most of these for me, and we worked very closely together. And when they would, when I would get, when I was in Vil Vilnius, I got the rough outline. So it would be like the, the opening, maybe, you know, this girl had six six sisters. And I thought, oh my God, that's going to be a comedy. I mean, any family that has six, you know, seven girls is crazy. As I got deeper into them, they morphed, but they really told, they were teens and they had hopes and they talked about boyfriends and girlfriends and their parents didn't understand them and technology. And one's I'm a political activist and I'm a musician and what, and they were people that I knew. They were people I grew up with, you know, they're parts of myself. So they were, I couldn't believe the honesty. I couldn't believe the honesty and the truth that they were putting down. And of course they wanted to win and there was a process of self-selection. I mean, I think you had to be, you know, a lot of them said, you know, my friends all told me you're such a good writer, you should enter this and stuff like that. Some were very long-winded, but I think they really took that tell the truth thing very seriously. Mm -hmm. at least the ones that I found. So yeah, it was an incredible revelation. I mean, one of the stories when Ellen, you know, when we got it and she said, this kid tried to escape the yeshiva and these yeshiva buckers came and they blocked him from getting on the bus. And it, it became a drama. It became a dramatic story. And then there was another one where there was a, um, a young woman, a 19 year old, and she was like, she wanted to say Kaddish for her father, but they wouldn't let her because it wasn't allowed. And she wrote about how unjust that felt. And, you know, all the barriers broke down between this world that I didn't know about and my world, because they were so honest, you know. And a quick shout out for Ellen Cassidy, who um, we're huge fans of here at the Yiddish yeah, Book Center. I had to mention her name because yeah. uh, she's wonderful and she really helped me a lot. Yeah, her translations are beautiful. Um, I'm curious to ask then the next question, which is about the format, um, which is the graphic novel, which I think probably had its attendant challenges, but also, um, interestingly to me, you know, it's it's such a, um, if, if I may, it's a contemporary format for a lot of teens and 20-somethings, um, obviously. And in their day, this might have been a really interesting way to have presented that. So how did you approach it, both then, now, whatever? Yeah, well, I, it's a medium that I, that I really love because I, you know, uh, I've always drawn and I've always been into um, comics and cartoons. But, you know, as I've started to become a professional practitioner of this or whatever, you know, we are very visual. We live in a highly visual time. I mean, Instagram and, you know, everybody has, you know, hundreds of thousands of pictures on their phone. And, you know, we, you know, 
our our eyes are a very 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 refined um you know organ we can sense things beautifully with them and i like to do the drawings to set the stage to put you into the world so you know again with uh the internet and things like this i was able to access i never do anything that's not you know i research it as well as i can to make sure that the that the um that the source material, the stop is, is of the time and of the moment. So for instance, if I'm going to show a phonograph, which I do in there, it has to be one that was available in that year, in that part of the country, uh, the part of the world, the fashions, the streets. I went to, I went to Vilnius, as I said, to soak it up, not just what the buildings look like, but what the streets were like, what the light looks like, how the river connects to the main street, connects to where you know, and I can, through drawing, I can inhabit this place. And then when I layer words on it, there becomes a tension because we live in the world of, of physical uh, surroundings, but then we have words that complement it. And it becomes, um, you know, and then we can throw our minds into it, we become participants in the scene. And uh, that's, I wanted to Make this like you're taking a, a, a time machine that takes you to this world before this time. And it was an extraordinarily, as I learned, just a super creative and vibrant world. And, uh, you know, there was kind of a hole in history from my upbringing where, and with all due respect, you know, to everything, you know, I kind of had like Fiddler on the Roof, uh, Theater in the Round images on one side, and then the horrible, horrible other images on the other side. But my parents, when they were little kids and my grand, they, they were alive at the same time. So I wanted to show this. And interestingly, um, Lisa, recently I was doing some research and I saw a book that had pictures of Chicago, uh, the area where my parents grew up in the thirties. And, you know, you'd think you were there, you know, in the twenties and thirties, it looked, it looked exactly the same. I, I think that that's that aha moment that I've experienced with my work here at the center, which is, you know, for me, everything seemed to have stopped in the shtetl and, and the idea, and, you know, Ellen Cassidy is really interesting because when she did the um, translations of Blue Malempel, I was shocked when I first started reading those stories because one of them opens with the, um, and they were originally in the edition, they were translated into English, but it opens with the, um, you know, sort of moon landing of Apollo. And I'm thinking, whoa, why would anybody be writing in Yiddish? And what you've done so beautifully with this, with this graphic novel is it reminds us that these teens were living in modern culture and that some of the things that they were grappling with were the same things that, you know, other teens and teens going forward was, will grapple with. And there's, there's just sort of... Um, something visually that also makes that true, even though they're illustrations and they're not photographs of them, that brings it into a contemporary landscape. Um, and you, you can kind of relate to, to these individual voices. And I find that rather fascinating. Um, yeah, I mean, there's one where that. one of the kids says, you know, uh, they were forcing me to go sing some kind of Purim songs, but I didn't want to do that. I would rather have been listening to a tango and dancing. And I thought, oh, my goodness, of course. And so then I would research and I find out tango music was so connected. Um, and the Argentina connection, and I'm a big music fan. So, mm -hmm. you know, of course, you know, these, 
and the pennies were dropping, you know, constantly uh, about this sort of stuff. And uh, so, you know, um, yeah, I felt it was extremely present. And um, so it was a moment in time and the vibrancy and the looking forwardness of, of, of both the, you know, it was a, a just highly creative and highly and a lot of turmoil. And I also wanted to strip away a lot of, um, you know, I look at it with, so there were a lot of political groups. You know, one thing you find out is that, you know, there was, there was far left, middle left, you know, communist, super communist, right wing, left wing, you know, and, and I thought, okay, you know, but they were teens. They probably wanted to meet boys. They wanted to meet girls. And, and a lot of that happened. In fact, one of the stories is a girl who goes from like a very, you know, she's socially, you know, so one is more high class, one is more working class, and there's cuter boys and this. And, and it reminded me of people, reminded me of my sisters, you know, trying to do stuff. So, which isn't to say that the leaders of the groups weren't super political and, and the people in the groups were very, very smart, but they were teenagers too, you know? And it's hard. I would imagine it was hard for you not to um, get sort of, I don't know if this is the right word, but emotionally attached to them. I mean, you're, you're telling their stories and you're telling them they're, you're, you're using their words um, uh, and allowing for these stories to surface to readers like myself and others um, who otherwise would never have, have read these essays. Um, And you know, again, I'm not sure what the right word I'm searching for it, but, but what kind of obligation, what kind of choices did you have to make and how, how is it to, from this point, look back on these lives um, and, and these, you know, these, what they wrote about? Well, it was a, you know, I felt very honored in a way because, um, you know, it's very ironic that we didn't know their names. I mean, they made every effort not to say, and then the rules, furthermore, they said, don't even mention the name of the town you're in, you know, but we knew their innermost feelings and thoughts. So I had to find aspects like any writer, I had to find aspects of myself. What is the political part of me? What would I have done if I was a politician? I, you know, what is the, what is the musical part of me? What is the skeptical part of me? What is the you know, there was one story, um, again, where uh, it, and I really had to nut it out because they weren't perfectly written. And I had to read them over and over and over again to figure out, you know, why, why did this guy feel a certain way about this girl and his friends? Because he says at one point, I had to, my, all my friends told me to like other girls, but I had to stick, but I wouldn't hear him. You'd think I put cotton in my ears, but no, it was love. It was love that, and I realized that at the end, it was because his friends were all going after the same girl as he was, and they wanted him out of the way. And I had to remember situations that I had in my life where me and maybe some of my friends were all, you know, in high school, like, you know, kind of liking the same girl or whatever, and how they, so, yeah, I mean, I I, I had to find aspects of myself to, to understand the truth about their lives and their stories, but not modify it in any way like mm-hmm. like i don't know what it's like to be um you know a a, a yiddish uh, daughter of a kosher butcher that can't say kaddish but and says that for the first time i began not to understand god but she's religious like i don't know what that means but i know it's profound and i know i have to give her her 
her space to say it. And I have to like, let her have her pain, you know, to the best that I can. I also wondered um, from the point of view of some of these teens who wrote these essays, if they ever would have wanted something in response to them, like well, seeking answers or, yeah. yeah. I think they were, st- well, you know, there was something I read in, in this book called uh, Revolution in the Head, which was written about the Beatles. And the guy starts out by saying, you know, youth will make their own fun. And I've talked to other people and they were like, oh yeah, you know, my parents were in a, you know, in a repatriation camp or my parents were, the, and the, but they would make fun. They would have fun. But some of them, yeah, I mean, they were feeling a lot of pain and teens and youth, you know, you're not fully formed. Uh, modern psychology tells us that our brains are still developing well into our twenties. I would say be, way beyond that for a lot of us, but some of them did want some sort of a response. I mean, at the end of one of them, the guy lapses into poetry and he says, please, you know, please uh, respond to this for me. I mean, I think some of them wanted to win. I think you also have to take it at a grain of thought. Some of them thought they'd become famous writers. They, even though they were, you know, they needed that, that validation. Um, they, and despite, you know, very strict rules, I mean, they're Jewish, they broke the rules. I mean, they were like, you're supposed to write 25 pages, but there was one I read, I read that had over a hundred pages in it, you know, um, but, uh, you know, I think also a lot of, I hear a lot of the vernacular stuff that I've gotten in other stories. Like I, I've been reading a book of stories that ran in the foreword and there were just some phraseology that were used in the time. And my, my Bubby would sometimes you know, say little things, you know, thank your lucky stars or, you know, whatever little, you know, there were little phrases like that. And when I would hear like a little phrase or little that they would use in that era, it it was really stunning, stunning to me to, to hear that, that connection, you know, and they, they're also one thing I wanted to add, they're flawed, they're flawed and they wrote their flaws. And that's what I loved about them. They hurt and they, and they want, and they're greedy, and, you know, they're just, I love that about them. They're not saints, you know? No, they were so honest, um, and it was, it was as if, you know, from what I've seen in your book, yeah, you feel like this was sort of, not cathartic, but it was, it allowed them to just pour out a lot of their thoughts, which was very brave, because this was going to be published, even if it was anonymously. I wonder if there was one that really resonated with you? You know, I had a lot, I think because I'm sort of a music, I'm sort of a musician. um, And the girl, this girl who, who really fell into music and wanted to, and there was, she said, I would come home from school and I would go in my room and I wouldn't do my homework. And I just sit there and I play and sing for hours and hours And I could just, I could relate to that, you know, and I thought, and she said at the beginning, and again, they were so wise, you know, for so young, young of people is like, I'm going to relay, you know, I was always loved music from a very early age, but then something happened that, that thwarted what might've been, you know, and I just, uh, and I like drawing people playing a mandolin. I mean, a lot of it had to do with what I like to draw, you know, uh, So, but I love them all, you know, I I really do. I mean, I feel so privileged to be able to show uh, this 
this vibrant life that they had in their words. And, uh, and it enlightened me a lot. Mm-hmm. I hope there's a volume too. Um, <laughs> I'm going to rest for a minute, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I thought cartoonists were always busy. Um, so yeah. do you ever also think about who they would have become? All the time. Uh, you know, uh, yeah, it, you know, and, and I, I think I, when I was writing it, I had to kind of get into autopilot mode a little bit and just, you know, try and deal with the material. And now that I'm sort of on the other side of it, you know, some of the deep emotions uh, I'm opening up more to uh, because I really made the rules that I didn't want to um, let my, let our current understanding, like they didn't know what was going to happen. And I wanted it to be, you know, to show the vibrancy and the creativity of that world and of the language and of their life. But um yeah, they were cut off in Mittendridden, you know, uh, and, uh, and, um, you know, there was a self-selection process. So these, these were kind of doers and kind of goers. And, uh, you know, I have kids and I see how they grow. And uh, it's, yeah, I mean, it's like, you know, I even sometimes wonder what would your, you know, I was looking at some demographic statistics last night. I mean, what, how would the world have looked, you know, who, what would what could have come of these people yeah it's just at least it's just it's that part of it is almost overwhelming for me to to deal with yeah i would imagine and i imagine it's hard not to um go back in and you know with the knowledge of the history not to allow that to infuse its way in i mean i think that you've done that so so brilliantly in in what you put together um, it's, it's a really wonderful book for our <laughs> listeners. It's when I grow up the lost autobiographies of six Yiddish teenagers, it's publication date is November 16th. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But it is available. We will. It is. It. It's, uh, uh, you know, through an internet near you, I think, or bookstores is there going to be, it's going to be in bookstores. So, yeah. yes. Um, we will have it at the Yiddish Book Centers online okay. and on site, uh, shop.yiddishbookcenter.org. Um, but it's available everywhere. It's really, um, it's really a wonderful piece. I, I, on behalf of all of us, I would like to thank you for bringing it out. Oh. And it's a book that will certainly resonate. I think it will also prompt a lot of really interesting conversations. And it's a great way for teens to understand um, other teens who generations, a couple of generations back. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I, I feel very uh, uh, lucky to have been spoke to speak to you because I know the Yiddish Book Center has like these incredible archives uh, and it's valuable, valuable stuff. Yeah, I think we're all beginning to mine them. And as you know, you, you said about Evo, they found these and there's so much more to unearth. Um, before I let you go, are you working on anything that you want to share? <laughs> I am working on a, I love to take obscure historical incidents and, and picture them. And I, all I'm going to say is I, you know, I came across a moment when Albert Einstein and Franz Kafka rubbed shoulders in 1911 for about 16 months. And, uh, in Prague. And so uh, you had me at Prague. So yeah, I'm working on that. <laughs> it's a great title. You had me at Prague. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, thank you again 
for taking the time to visit today for your work. And again, listeners, go out and get a copy. When I Grow Up, The Lost Autobiographies of Six Yiddish Teenagers. Thanks again. Stay well. You have been listening to The Schmooze, a production of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. To learn more about this podcast and to subscribe, visit YiddishBookCenter.org. I'm Elizabeth Carteropoli. Until next time, be well and be healthy.